Well, thanks to all of you for coming out to our service this morning, and I pray that the rest of this Christmas Day is wonderful for each and every one of you. Not so fast, preacher man. Behold, it is I, Horus, Egyptian god of the sun. And while you all believe that you've been celebrating the birth of your Lord Jesus, you've really been celebrating the birth of me. For you see, thousands of years before your Jesus came around, I, Horus, was born on December 25th. I, Horus, was born of a virgin. I, Horus, was baptized by... For the rest of us, if you want to have your Bibles open at John 6, that's where I'll be mainly referring. Uh, but we will have other verses and things up on the screen. Well, it's Easter time, and I don't know about you, but uh, that means, Easter means that uh, my Facebook feed is full of memes from friends about how Easter uh, actually isn't a Christian tradition, that it's been borrowed from other religions. Basically, a whole lot of memes telling me that Jesus and the, the story of his death and resurrection that's just myth. So uh, one of the favourites is, of course, um, Estra. I don't know if you've seen this one. Um, so Estra was a, a German goddess. Uh, she uh, supposedly was the divinity of the radiant dawn, uh, was celebrated during the northern spring, which is our Easter time, um, and she was around long before Jesus. At least that's what we're told. Uh, even more supposedly, she died uh, during the winter sometimes and then came back to life uh, right at, you guessed it, springtime at Easter. Um, and uh, so very supposedly, early Christians adapted her story and made it part of the Jesus myth that it wasn't really about Jesus dying and rising again. It was all about changes of seasons. Now, I say all that supposedly because, first of all, the very thought that Christians made a connection between Estra and Easter is a bit of a, a false lead because the early Christians didn't celebrate Easter, they celebrated Pascha, the suffering. It's a much later thing to call Easter, Easter. Um, so for starters, the name doesn't really work. But worse, there's actually very little evidence of what the worship of life was like, if it existed at all, of Estra back at the time when Christians were around. So our best evidence goes back 1,700 years for Estra. Um, that still is a 300-year gap to try and bridge, let alone getting from Germany down to Turkey and Greece, where the early Christians were. So there's just a whole lot of missing pieces there. It's very convenient, and of course it doesn't stop the memes, but it's just not necessarily a, a tight argument. Now, of course, it's not the only one. I actually thought we'd watch this little video. I hope you'll indulge me. Um, but this is one of those videos which just picks up all of these claims and someone's decided to just make a bit of fun of it um, and in the same time communicate a bit of truth about some of these claims that we hear. Well, thanks to all of you for coming out to our service this morning, and I pray that the rest of this Christmas Day is wonderful for each and every one of you. Not so fast, preacher man. 
Behold, it is I, Horus, Egyptian god of the sun. And while you all believe that you've been celebrating the birth of your lord Jesus, you've really been celebrating the birth of me. For you see, thousands of years before your Jesus came around, I, Horus, was born on December 25th. I, Horus, was born of a virgin. I, Horus, was baptized by a man called Arnold the Baptizer, was crucified and was resurrected three days later. So you see, your Jesus is nothing more than plagiarized poppycock, and I, Horus, have come to feast upon the sorrow of you foolish Christians. Yeah, none of the stuff you just said is true. Yes, it is. No, there's no reference in Egyptian mythology to Horus being crucified or resurrected three days later. There's no documentation anywhere for the existence of a figure named Anup the Baptizer. Horus' mother was not a virgin woman, but the goddess Isis. And there is no specific date anywhere tied to the birth of Horus. I'm pretty sure there is. Actually, no. All of these claims and many others indicating that early Christians yoinked the mythology of Horus and stuck it on top of Jesus were all completely made up by Gerald Massey, a 19th century cuckoo banana bird self-taught Egyptologist who never provided the slightest shred of evidence for any of these claims and who was laughed out of the room by every serious Egyptologist on the planet. So thank you very much for your attempt to ruin our celebration of Christ's birth, but I'm afraid we're all still having a very Merry Christmas, Horus. Horus? Did I say my name was Horus? No, no, no. What I meant to say was, Behold, it is I, Mithras, Roman cultic god of the something-something, and while you all believe that you've been celebrating the birth of Jesus, you've really been celebrating the birth of me. For you see, I, Mithras, was born of a virgin. I, Mithras, had twelve disciples, and I, Mithras, gave those disciples a meal consisting of my body and my blood. Sound familiar, Christian dummies? Actually, Mithras was born from a rock, not of a virgin. He had two companions, not twelve disciples, and the Mithraic meal was one he shared with the sun god where they feasted not on his own flesh, but on the flesh of a bull. But even if those claims were true, Christians were already confessing the virgin birth, recognizing the twelve apostles, and celebrating the Lord's Supper before they ever encountered any Mithraic cults. So I'm afraid that you've taken neither the holly nor the jolly out of our Christmas, Mithras. Oh, you must have misheard me. I- I'm not Mithras. I'm, uh, Quetzalcoatl, Aztec god of the wind. And Valuol thinks that you've been- No Christian on the face of the planet ever heard of Quetzalcoatl until the 16th century. Well, then I'm Baldur, Norse god of the- There were 193 popes before Baldur's mythology was actually written down. Then I'm Horus, Egyptian god of the sun. You already did that one. All right, fine. I didn't want to completely humiliate you, but you've left me no choice. I shall now unveil myself to be the ancient deity whose mythology was inarguably stolen by early Christians. Behold, I am... The ancient Mesopotamian god of judgment. Six thousand years before your Jesus spoke of returning to condemn the lost and resurrect the faithful, my followers proclaimed that I would return to destroy my enemies and raise the dead. So silence your joyful voices, Christians. Your lord is nothing but a cheap carbon copy of me, the destructor who goes by many names. I am Volguas Zilidroha. I am lord of the Zebulia. I am Gozer the Gozerian. Gozer the Gozerian is from Ghostbusters. Dang it, why do so many people still know that movie? Sing with joyous all together, follow.
understand. If all the things that Gerald Massey said about me were complete fabrications, with no textual evidence whatsoever, why do atheists like Bill Maher reference these claims as if they were true? Well, Horace, I suppose it is strange that people who insist that they won't believe anything without verifiable evidence are more than willing to believe anything without verifiable evidence as long as that thing can be used to mock the gospel. But we shouldn't be surprised when people reject proof of Christ's resurrection in favor of demonstrable lies that let them remain in unbelief. After all, Jesus did say, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I said that before Jesus did. Oh, you absolutely did not. A bit lighthearted. I hope it's uh, still helpful, though. Um, I just think it's so important, with all these things being thrown around, and you're bound to see one of those names pop up on a uh, Facebook feed somewhere, um, to realise that there actually are good arguments against that stuff. But the, the whole claim that Jesus the Son of God, the, the, the divine Jesus, there's a bit of a myth. It's, um, it's particularly targeted at the Gospel of John. Uh, this is the book that most boldly claims Jesus is God and presents evidence after evidence. We see it today, don't we, when Jesus walks on the water. And we want to explore that. But before we go there, I thought it's worth, therefore, since John is the big target, just worth picking up some of the good evidence that you can trust the Bible as history. Um, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to go to a, a book. I've lost control of the slides, I'm afraid, so I'll have to get you to turn it over for me. I'm going to go to a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Um, the author was Richard Borkham. Uh, he's a lecturer in the New Testament, and uh, he did, wrote this book in the last decade, and it's really, really helpful. does a number of things in the book, but one chapter in particular, what he does is he picks up all the names we see in the New Testament. So the Marys and the Judases and the Simons... And he counts how many different people have those names. And he sort of does a bit of a statistical distribution, which are more frequent, which are less. He does the same thing with other historical sources, some of them from that time and place, and then documents that are from different places and different times. And what he finds is that the distribution of names in the Bible most closely reflects documents, the names that were actually being used in that time and that place, first century Palestine. And that's really significant when you think about it, that there were no, um, uh, you know, 1998 most popular book of name, baby names that someone could go and access as a source as they were going to make up a story about Jesus. To get that sort of correlation, you really had to be in the area, you had to know the people it's the sort of stuff that happens when you write history, not when you make up the story of Jesus. And particularly, he gives the example of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a very popular name during that time and place for Jew Jewish leaders. It was in the, the ruling class. Just had this little surge of, of Nicodemus as a popular name. And so, as we hit the book of John, it's presenting itself much more as history than it is... Uh, as some sort of myth that's made up a lot longer and a lot later. So, we approach John as history, but that leaves us a problem. And the problem is, what it claims about Jesus is just hard to believe. Now look again at John 6. We read it earlier. It records that Jesus 
walked on water, not some shallow pond. Jesus' disciples get out in a boat and they row five kilometres away from shore. And with winds churning up the water, like we saw in the video, Jesus calmly walks to the boat. Listen again from verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. And I mean, who could blame them? When the passage between the North and South Stradbroke Islands gets windy, that's, that's pretty choppy. A sea can be terrifying, and yet for Jews, there's more to it than that. Because for the Jew, the sea represented chaos. It represented opposition to God. It, it was this powerful, almost uncontrollable evil. So I think back to Genesis 1, when God made the world... He pushed back the sea to reveal dry land, didn't he? And when the Israelites escape Egypt, God holds back the sea so that his people can pass through on dry land. And then he unleashes the power of the sea so that it demolishes an entire Egyptian army. And so the sea is powerful and God points to the sea as ev- evidence of just how powerful he is. So have a listen to Jeremiah 5, verse 22. I think we can have it up on the screen. Uh, Jeremiah 5, verse 22. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. This terrifying power that is the sea is under God's control. And so we have Isaiah 43, verse 5. Um, We read it earlier. And what it does is it looks back on the Exodus, but it also then remembers that moment and then looks forward and says, you know that power then? I'm going to use it to keep protecting my people. It's a promise for the future that whenever they face this sort of terrifying power, God will be with them. Verse, four, uh, verse 5 of 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. God's power is greater than the sea and it's for his people. And then we meet Jesus in this reading. And, and his disciples, they're there struggling in the boat, but Jesus just treats the surging waves like carpet. This is the sort of power that Jesus has. And just to make the connection really clear for us that Jesus is claiming to be God, we have verse 20. In the original language, it is I, can also read I am, which is the name that God gave to his people, I am, Yahweh. And the history of the people, time and again, God would appear to them and say, I am, do not be afraid. And then just to top it off, Isaiah 43 promised that the moment that when God was with his people, they'd be safe from the water. And the moment Jesus gets into the boat, instantaneously, they're suddenly on dry land. Have a look at uh, at it from verse 20. But he said to them, I am, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. 
John is really clearly showing us that Jesus has God's power, and it's because Jesus is God. Now, it's actually worth stopping here and just unpacking that statement, because uh, it's not immediately obvious what we mean when we say Jesus is God, is it? Uh, I find with my RI kids, I think they've got two theories running in their heads, probably different kids across the class. There's some of them, I think, when I say that, they think, oh, well, Jesus is sort of God's costume. Jesus is the, the clothing that God puts on when he turns up on earth. I think there's other kids that are there thinking, oh, you say you're saying God is a human being. And this human being, Jesus, is actually God. It's, it's pretty complex, isn't it? Um, we're going into that whole area called the doctrine of the Trinity, and it can be confusing. And so the first thing worth noting is, well, that's because God is mind-blowing. God is a big God. And so he can be beyond what we can imagine. Um, I think of it a bit like, um, have we got that thing on the light? Um, it's like when scientists started studying light, and they found that light behaved like a wave. But then later on, someone else came along and said, well, no, actually, light behaves like a particle. I don't know if you can read the word, but it turns out we had to end up saying, no, actually, light is both a particle and a wave, which actually makes no sense. But it's what's there. It's reality, and the best we can do is describe it as it is. And it's the same with the Trinity. This is not the sort of stuff you make up if you're making up a religion. It, it's, a, it's difficult to explain. It's embarrassing for Christians if they can't explain it and, and someone will pick on them for it. But it's our best attempt at describing what we discover when we meet God in the Bible. This is us just saying, this is how it is, this is what we see. So let's do that. Let's just step through what do we see in the Bible, how do we discover God? Well, first of all, God reveals himself as one. Uh, Right back at Mount Sinai, God says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God is one. He is not one of many equal gods. There is only one God like Yahweh. He's the one who made heaven and earth, and only he decides what's happening in this world. And what's more important, he will not share his glory with anyone else. He won't let anyone else be worshipped at the same level as him. So God is one. But then we meet Jesus. And we're shown that Jesus is God. Like in today's passage, that Jesus does what God does. He calls himself I Am. He accepts the titles that belong only to God. He even accepts worship because Jesus is God. And yet, next slide, Jesus is not the Father. God the Father is clearly a different person. I mean, Israel knew God as Father in the Old Testament. That was one of the names they would use for him. But notice, Jesus speaks of the Father as someone different to him. So just jump down to verse 27. Uh, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man and then says that the Father approves of him. So clearly they're not the same person. Uh, They're not different faces of the one being. The Father is God and Jesus is God. But Jesus is not the Father. Okay. And then we go on and we read and we find the same thing with the Spirit. 
He's a different person to Jesus, and yet he does what Jesus does. The Spirit is God, but he's not the Father, and he's not the Son. One God, three distinct persons, that's the Trinity. And that's where we stop. Uh, We don't try to explain why. Uh, We don't try an analogy to describe it, because God's not like ice, water and steam. He's three persons at once. Um, God's not like a three-leaf clover. God is unique. He is Trinity. And if you're sitting there and thinking, well, that's all very good in terms of intellectual wrestling and all that sort of thing, please notice the comfort that comes when you know God this way. It's what we just saw before. If Jesus is really God then his disciples don't need to fear. What does he say? I am, don't be afraid. And that's what I reckon is worth understanding the Trinity for. Once you understand that God is Trinity, it is even more comforting, it is more security for you when you know God that way. If God is three persons, each truly God, all united in one Godhead, then nothing on earth... And nothing in heaven can ever defeat him. So just to illustrate this, let's go to another part of the Bible. Galatians 4 verse 6 um, is a a really helpful verse. It's up on the screen. So in this verse from Galatians, and look, I could have picked several other verses in the Bible, but what we find is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're working together for one purpose, um, to make us God's children. It's not just the Father at work, it's not just Jesus, three persons, equally God, together working in one task. And they're working differently. God the Father makes us His children, we become children by sharing in the Spirit of Jesus, who is His Son, and that Spirit teaches us to go, Papa, to call on Dad. Have a listen to the verses. Because you are His Son, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. You've got three people. Whenever God is at work, there are three persons working to the one purpose to achieve our salvation, working out his purposes. And this makes us safe. The more we understand that Jesus is God and the Father is God and the Spirit is God, the less we have to fear. Um, So my mother didn't really enjoy her experience of school. Her teachers were harsh, uh, they were distant, and especially her principals, um, she feared them a lot. If you went to the principal, that was a sure sign you'd got in a lot of trouble. Um, But eventually she took me to school, and it was year one, and she was serving in the tuck shop, and the principal walks past and says, oh, Mrs. Williams, I saw your son today. And she's like, cold panic, what, what's he done? But no... This principle worked differently. He actually wanted to encourage students. I was sent down to be commended for good work. Her experience of principle was all power but all fear. But the principle I had, he was more of a rounded person in how he communicated with his people, with the students. We knew him as someone who was on our side. And that's what we find in the Trinity. We might be astounded to find that there's Father, Son and Spirit, but the more we see them at work, the more we see 
Three persons working for our good. And it's meant to be really encouraging. People have all sorts of pictures of God and who He is. What we need to know is, God is I am. He is the Father, the Son and the Spirit. United in one work. United in doing good for us. And so the only question left is, why do people miss that evidence? So why do people say that this is all myth? Why do they dismiss it? Uh, Just look briefly with me at verse 22. So Jesus does this amazing miracle in the night. Um, He's fed the crowds just before. The, The crowds wake up, they find Jesus is gone, and so they chase him. Some boats arrive, they get on board, they cross the lake, they find Jesus. But Jesus says they didn't chase after him because he's God. They didn't see the supernatural implications of his signs. They just wanted life to be comfortable now. They saw a free meal. They were focused on their physical needs and that was all they cared about. They totally missed the eternal comfort Jesus was offering. Have a read from verse 26. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. That uh, title, Son of Man, it's a big deal. It's from Daniel. It's a reminder of a time, a vision that Daniel had, where, where the sea was in turmoil, and everything was chaos. And out of that sea came these beasts, that were ready to, to tear apart the earth, but then the Ancient of Days appeared and he just tore those beasts to shreds, defeated them all. And then the Son of Man comes on the clouds, ascends into the presence of the Ancient of Days, becomes into the very presence of God and sits down to rule the world because finally the world's at peace. And that is what Jesus came to do. These people, they're they're wanting too little from Jesus. What is a couple of loaves and a few fish compared to eternal peace? What is 12 baskets of bread compared to divine power? I mean, you could have your groceries guaranteed forever. You could walk into any IGA store and then you'd just be able to take anything off the shelf and, and life could be so easy, except that the world would still be a horrible place at times to live in, wouldn't it? Because... There are such evil things that happen. We need Jesus to do something much bigger than provide a few meals. We need worldwide change. A change of government. Not, not Shorten instead of Morrison, not Sanders instead of Trump. We need the triune God in charge and Satan's rule to end. It's interesting, isn't it, how often our prayers, though, they give us this day our daily bread then not so often, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is God and he's come with all his power to rescue this world. Don't miss the big picture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to see uh, Jesus rule. We thank you that he is God and in saying that there is great comfort available. We have no reason to fear and every reason to put our hope and confidence in him. And please, Heavenly Father, help us to see that this is true, 
not merely because of the evidence, but because of the, the magnitude of what Jesus is promising to do for this world. His promise to save it and rescue it and make it right. We pray we put our hope in his promise. In Jesus' name, amen.